Here's an honest question. How are you supposed to know what to do with your money? Very few of us are exposed to meaningful advice on how to manage our finances. Even fewer have the means to get professional financial guidance. Betterment is a platform that was built to do something radical, to give accessible financial advice that puts you first. If you're like most Americans, your money is probably sitting in a savings account, likely earning you next to nothing. Maybe you have an investment account that you're not really sure what to do with. Betterment can help you make sense of what to do with your money. Investing involves risk, but you don't have to know the ins and the outs of the stock market to start investing for your future. Betterment's technology will put your money to work choosing the stocks and strategies that are right for you because we know you have other things to do. Betterment's platform can even provide guidance on what financial goals make sense for you. Give your money a new home with Betterment, peace of mind included. Download the Betterment app today. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-M-E-N-T. For the betterment of you. This episode of Weird Darkness is brought to you by My Pillow, and I'd like to read a tweet that was sent to me by Weirdo family member Amcat96. She said, My My Pillow came in yesterday, and I didn't think I would like it because of how it was stuffed. Oh, was I wrong? I slept like a baby and woke up, and my neck didn't hurt. Made it so much harder to get out of bed. Right now, you can get two premium My Pillows for one low price. Go to mypillow.com and use the promo code WEIRD. Or call 800-945-7192. That's 800-945-7192. Or MyPillow.com. Promo code WEIRD. Stories and content in Weird Darkness can be disturbing for some listeners and is intended for mature audiences only. Parental discretion is strongly advised. Everyone was welcome at the People's Temple. Young and old. Black and white. Over 900 of them lived together at an idealistic socialist commune in the jungles of Guyana called Jonestown. By November 1978, they were all dead. Captured in one of the most chilling audio tapes ever recorded, Jonestown's eponymous leader, charismatic preacher Jim Jones, could be heard urging his followers to commit an act of what he called revolutionary suicide. Each member was to drink a cyanide concoction out of paper cups, full of soft drink Kool-Aid, Jonestown residents largely consisting of blacks, women, and children, seemingly obeyed their leader. Within five minutes, their bodies fell to the earth, dead. Jones, too, would die, apparently from a self-inflicted bullet to the head. 913 Americans perished in all thousands of miles from home, their socialist paradise in the jungle turned into the blackest nightmare imaginable. It remains the worst mass death of its kind in modern history. But what Jim Jones labeled revolutionary suicide, others regard as mass murder. Over 200 young children were injected or forced to drink the poison, effectively murdered by their own parents and carers. Other residents were being held against their will or had become brainwashed by Jones' constant night and day preaching. That at least some of the deaths were murder is obvious, but was something even more sinister at work. Dark suspicions that the events of Jonestown were some kind of CIA mind control experiment began to circulate. I'm Darren Marlar, and this is Weird Darkness.
Welcome, weirdos. This is Weird Darkness. Here you'll find stories of the paranormal, supernatural, mysterious, macabre, unsolved, and unexplained. If you have a dark tale for me to tell, you can share it with me at WeirdDarkness.com. And be sure to subscribe to the podcast if you've not done so already so you don't miss a single episode. A quick reminder, our first-ever Weird Darkness live scream is taking place on Halloween. It'll be on camera via YouTube, so be sure to subscribe to my channel at youtube.com slash marlerhouse. The Weird Darkness live scream begins October 31st, 5 p.m. Central Time. That's 6 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Mountain, 3 p.m. Pacific. This is our anniversary month at Weird Darkness, and I'm dedicating October to raising funds for depression and suicide prevention. And you can donate right now by clicking on Battle the Darkness at WeirdDarkness.com or click the link in the show notes. You know, we all know somebody who suffers from depression or has thoughts about suicide, but I want to bring hope to them. But I can't do that without you. A donation of any amount is hugely beneficial towards treatment and research for those who are in crisis. So please give now at WeirdDarkness.com. Click on Battle the Darkness or click the link in the show notes. Coming up in this episode of Weird Darkness. Was the unidentified Cape Cod murder victim an extra in the film Jaws? Horror author Joe Hill thinks so. Of the many mysterious and ominous places on Earth, many bodies of water are said to be cursed haunted, or both. For whatever reason, these lakes have drawn about them tales of misfortune, terror, and death, and they continue to elude rational answers. I'll share some of the strangest. At the dawn of the 20th century, Ambrose Bierce was one of the most famous writers in America. And then he mysteriously vanished and was the mass suicide at Jim Jones Commune in Guiana in 1978, a CIA mind control experiment? We begin with that story. Now bolt your doors, lock your windows, turn off your lights, and come with me into the weird darkness. Born during the Great Depression in 1931, Jim Jones grew up in a broken and troubled home. His father was a Ku Klux Klansman, something that would have a deep and abiding effect on Jones' politics for the rest of his life. Neglected by his parents, the young Jim Jones was taken under the wing of the local Pentecostal ministry and would be greatly influenced by the fire and brimstone preachers he witnessed giving sermons at the church. Inspired by their example, Jones would develop his own brand of grandiloquent oratory, but with this came a sadistic tendency to use his skills to manipulate and bully others, a key factor in the tragedy that would unfold many years later at Jonestown. Long repelled by his father's racism, Jones gravitated towards black audiences, finding them particularly receptive to sermons 
in which Jones would advocate racial equality and rail against the injustices of capitalism. That highlighted the strange dichotomy of the Reverend Jim Jones. He was an atheist. In fact, he was actively hostile to religion and would tear up and decry the Bible at his sermons. For Jones, the ecclesiastical trappings were simply a vehicle for his political and social campaigning. The absurdity of a man who hated religion forming his own church is perhaps somewhat lost to history, yet that is exactly what Jones did in 1956. But then the People's Temple wasn't really a church at all. It was a cult with Jim Jones as its god. Throughout the 1960s and 70s, the People's Temple would spawn dozens of branches around California with thousands of followers and a largely black congregation. As this was the height of the civil rights movement in America, Jones's church and influence among black voters lent him the political power he always craved. But it seems it wasn't just politicians who took an interest in the People's Temple. In the 1960s, the CIA opened a secret file on Jim Jones. The agencies always refused to explain what their interest was in Jones, and they would later inexplicably claim the file was empty. It was clear the interest was far from routine with the news that the CIA's internal office of security had also vetted Jones, something that would normally be done for those selected to work for the agency. Was Jones a CIA agent? Extra weight was given to the possibility by the revelation that Jones's childhood friend and longtime associate, former police chief Dan Mitrioni, worked throughout the 1960s for a secret CIA front organization who specialized in torture and assassination. By the 1970s, the People's Temple was flourishing, but the controversies over Jones' church also grew. Allegations of sexual abuse, torture, and brainwashing caused a major scandal that made national headlines and even drew the attention of Congress. In reaction, the increasingly paranoid Jones dismissed the attacks as an orchestrated campaign against him. Taking the most extreme action, in 1977 he relocated his entire ministry to a settlement in Guyana, South America that he christened Jonestown. Ostensibly an agricultural commune, Jonestown was more like a prison camp, with armed guards patrolling its perimeter. Although now far away from media scrutiny in America, the stories of brainwashing and torture persisted. Those who managed to escape Jonestown even reported many of its members were being held against their will. The American government had to act. Accompanied by an NBC camera crew and reporters, U.S. Congressman Leo Ryan led a party to Guyana to inspect conditions at Jonestown. Four members of the group would not leave Guyana alive. Although superficially cordial, Ryan's visit was tense. Whilst an increasingly rambling and incoherent Jim Jones dismissed any suggestions of impropriety, several members of the commune slipped Ryan notes, begging him to help them escape. Seemingly realizing Jonestown was doomed, Jones apparently ordered a team of gunmen to follow the congressional party to the airstrip. On November 18, 1978, Ryan, two NBC reporters, and a cameraman were all shot dead as they were preparing to board their plane. 
Shortly after, Jones enacted the very last of his White Nights. This is how the preacher described the suicide drills he would regularly conduct at Jonestown. He had already prepared his congregation for the possibility of what he called a revolutionary suicide as a protest against the injustices of the world. Claiming that troops would soon arrive and take their children, Jones told his flock that suicide was the only way out. Remarkably, most of them accepted what the leader had ordered. Within a couple of hours, almost everyone was dead, including Jones. Only a handful who hid or feigned death to avoid drinking the cyanide-laced Kool-Aid made it out alive. But could over 900 people really have agreed to commit suicide at once? The Guyanese pathologist Dr. Leslie Mutu was the first to examine the bodies. Shockingly, he concluded most of the residents had actually been murdered. There was also an inexplicable discrepancy in the body count. The Guyanese had found 408 bodies, but later, when the Americans arrived, this was revised to a mind-boggling 913, along with some unconvincing explanations for the disparity. Along with these problems, there were troubling details about Jonestown itself. Vast quantities of antipsychotic drugs were found at the site, far in excess of what would normally be needed for 900 people. The camp also hosted a sophisticated hospital, and Jonestown residents were reportedly given medical assessments on an almost daily basis. Clearly, whatever Jonestown was, it was no ordinary agricultural commune. Was it, as some have suggested, actually a mind control operation? Were the bizarre stories of brainwashing and suicide rehearsals actually part of some sinister medical experiment? Congressman Leo Ryan's family certainly believed so. They filed a lawsuit two years later alleging that Jonestown was an extension of a clandestine CIA mind control operation called MKUltra. Its existence revealed only three years earlier by the Senate's Church Committee, MKUltra was a vast illegal operation that included experiments on unwitting human subjects, the surreptitious administration of mind-altering drugs, torture, and sensory deprivation. All of these unedifying activities were also reported to have occurred at Jonestown. Had the CIA secretly continued their mind control experiments under the guise of the People's Temple? Jonestown had CIA connections right from the beginning. Founded in the mid-1970s, its location in Guyana was once a CIA training camp for mercenaries as part of their covert operations in Angola. George Philip Blakely, a pivotal figure in the forming of the Jonestown community, placed a $650,000 down payment on the land in 1973. It was Blakely more than anyone who was eventually responsible for the People's Temple relocating to Guyana, far from the scrutiny of the U.S. authorities. Blakely was also an agent of the CIA, involved with their clandestine activities in Angola. Although a member of the Jonestown community, Blakely conveniently absented himself on the day of the massacre. Blakely was also married to another Temple member called Deborah Layton, who would also play a key role in the tragedy. Layton was one of the first Jonestown defectors to expose what was really happening at the commune, and her allegations, 
that Jones was running a suicide cult did much to fix the idea in the public mind, leading directly to Congressman Ryan's visit. It would be Deborah Layton's brother Larry who would murder Ryan on the airstrip at Port Kaituma. The pair's father, Dr. Lawrence Laird Layton, was a senior scientist in the U.S. National Security Establishment who for many years worked on their top-secret chemical and biological warfare programs. Whilst not a member of the People's Temple, Dr. Layton was an important early fundraiser for Jonestown. George Philip Blakely, his wife Deborah, and her brother Larry all had privileged backgrounds and were born into wealthy families. That they would be involved in a backbreaking agricultural commune consisting almost entirely of poor black people is odd in itself. But the fact all three of these People's Temple members would play such pivotal roles in precipitating the Jonestown tragedy yet survive unscathed is deeply suspicious. Whilst it's only speculation they were participants in some kind of CIA operation, a more solid link to the agency can be found in the figure of Richard Dwyer. U.S. Embassy official Richard Dwyer accompanied Congressman Leo Ryan on his visit to Jonestown. Neither Ryan or anyone else in the party were aware that Dwyer was also a CIA agent or that the nearby Guyanese capital, Georgetown, housed a CIA station. Dwyer's exact role in the Jonestown massacre has long been a source of mystery. On the infamous death tape where Jim Jones can be heard urging his followers to commit suicide, he refers to Dwyer on several occasions, asking an unknown cult member to get Dwyer out of here before something happens to him. But according to Dwyer's own account, he was not there. He remained at Port Kaituma in the aftermath of the shooting at the airstrip. Whether Dwyer is lying about this or not, someone at the CIA knew exactly what was unfolding at Jonestown long before the Guyanese Army first found the bodies. In the early hours of the 19th of November, before the grisly events had been discovered, the CIA's Noiwan Secure Radio Channel reported mass suicides at Jonestown. Whether it was Dwyer or not, the CIA were surely present at Jonestown during or shortly after the tragedy, as there was no other way they could possibly have known anything had occurred at the commune, let alone a mass suicide. Officially, the CIA have always denied any part in the events of Jonestown or any connection with Jim Jones, but evidently this is a lie. And what's particularly interesting about their curious early certainty that the tragedy was a mass suicide is it is directly contradicted by the medical professional who first studied the bodies. As we have seen, the CIA was keen to report the tragedy as a mass suicide before the bodies had even been discovered. The media would soon follow suit and push the mass suicide story, and to this day, this is still how Jonestown is most often portrayed. Incredibly, only seven autopsies were ever conducted out of the 913 victims, and even those weren't conclusive. All of the bodies had been left out in the heat for so long they had become heavily decomposed, destroying much of the evidence, and clumsy embalming meant it was impossible to reliably determine the cause of death. The determination that the dead had died of cyanide poisoning was largely circumstantial, based on the cyanide crystals that were found in Jonestown's medical supplies 
and syringes and bottles containing the poison. No trace could be found in the vats of Kool-Aid, though. The substance is thought to have broken down in the days after the massacre. Dr. Leslie Mutu, Guyana's most senior pathologist, was the first medical professional to examine the bodies. Mutu and his staff methodically examined scores of bodies and came to a surprising conclusion. According to Mutu, most of the victims had actually been murdered. 83 of the 100 adult bodies he examined had needle puncture marks between their shoulders. As they clearly would not administer the drug themselves in this way, Mutu concluded that they had been held down or forcibly injected. Bottles containing lethal potassium cyanide but labeled as Valium were found scattered on the ground, leading Mutu to suspect many victims had been tricked into taking the poison, thinking they were tranquilizers. Dozens of the bodies had also clearly been shot, and some killed with crossbows. All in all, Mutu determined some 80 to 90 percent of the victims had been murdered. Despite this, the mass suicide story was still the one pushed by the American government and the media. Once back in the U.S., many of the bodies were illegally cremated before their relatives could see the remains, whilst hundreds of others remained unidentified. With no known eyewitnesses to the deaths, and less than 1% of the bodies having been autopsied, it was essentially impossible to determine what really happened at Jonestown. Even the evidence and samples Dr. Mutu had meticulously gathered at the crime scene vanished in transit to the United States. And then there was the astonishing discrepancy in the body count. The Guyanese Army counted the number of victims as 408. Days later, when the U.S. Army arrived, this number was progressively revised upwards – 775, 800, 869, 910, 912, eventually settling at the grim total of 913. The U.S. Army initially claimed the discrepancy was because the Guyanese could not count, an insulting suggestion that was quickly retracted. They would then say some of the bodies had fallen on top of others and covered them. But many wondered how 408 corpses could cover 505 bodies, especially when at least 80 of the initial 408 were children. Even the 913 figure seemed odd. Estimates of the population of Jonestown were in the 1100 to 1200 range, not including those known to be elsewhere, meaning at least 100 of its members had seemingly vanished without a trace. Like members of his family, Congressman Leo Ryan's chief of staff, Joseph Holsinger, suspected CIA involvement to Jonestown. In 1980, Holsinger was made aware of a study undertaken at the University of Berkeley called the Penal Colony that gave him the darkest of suspicions. The Berkeley paper detailed how the CIA's mind control program, codenamed MKUltra, supposedly terminated in 1973, had actually continued, moving from hospitals and government facilities to religious cults. Cults, Holsinger concluded, like Jonestown. For Holsinger, several things about Jonestown simply did not make sense. One was the staggering quantities of pharmaceutical drugs found at the commune. For a humble agricultural community of 1,200, most of whom worked 16-hour days for meager food rations, the numbers defied explanation. 
Amongst the drugs found at Jonestown were quaaludes, thallium, morphine, demerol, truth serum sodium pentothal, chloral hydrate, thallium, and an incredible 11,000 doses of Thorazine, an antipsychotic. Many of the substances were noted for their mood-altering and hallucinogenic properties, exactly the kind of drugs the CIA had employed in their MKUltra experiments. The parallels between MKUltra and Jonestown did not end there. The widespread accounts of the abuses at the commune, sensory deprivation, torture, punishment beatings, sexual humiliation, and brainwashing were all exactly the kind of thing the CIA had been studying in MKUltra. Was the People's Temple in Jonestown actually an offshoot of the CIA's mind control projects, as the Berkeley paper suggested? If it was, it might explain how a socialist cooperative in the middle of the Guianese jungle acquired such vast quantities of mood-altering drugs, or how the CIA knew about the mass suicide before it had ever been discovered. Either way, it's obvious that brainwashing was at work in Jonestown, even if just from the pulpit of Jim Jones himself. Whilst traveling in Brazil in the 1960s, Jones studied the mind-control techniques used by voodoo cults and religions such as Santeria and clearly used what he had learned throughout his time with the People's Temple. Some authors have speculated he did so under the wing of the CIA. Also in Brazil, at the same time, very close by to where Jones was living, was CIA torture specialist and childhood friend Dan Mitrioni. Was Mitrioni Jones's case officer, as many suspected? And could Jones's trip have been a fact-finding mission for MKUltra? A 44-minute audio tape dubbed The Death Tape exists which records the meeting Jones called in which he ordered the mass suicide. In it, Jones tells his congregation, as he had done many times before, that troops were going to come and destroy their community. One of the people on that plane is going to shoot the pilot, I know that. I didn't plan it, but I know it's going to happen. They're going to shoot that pilot and down comes the plane into the jungle and we'd better not have any of our children left when it's over because they'll parachute in here on us," Jones is heard to say. So my opinion is that you be kind to children and be kind to seniors and take the potion like they used to take in ancient Greece and step over quietly because we are not committing suicide, it's a revolutionary act. After a brief period of dissent early in the tape, where alternatives to suicide are suggested by some temple members, most of those present then seem to accept Jones's orders. Indeed, the tape is quite notable for the calm and rational manner in which the community accepts their fate. If any of the alternative theories about Jonestown are true, they're not recorded on this tape. However, the extant tape clearly contains numerous gaps and excisions, which suggests it was either edited live for some reason or that events depicted that do not fit the suicide theory were edited out at a later date. More than 30 years on, the Jonestown Massacre remains one of the strangest and most disturbing events in modern history. And with not a single witness to the deaths remaining to tell the tale, we'll probably never know what really happened. What we do know is that hundreds of society's poorest 
and most disadvantaged people, mainly women and children, traveled far from home looking for salvation, only to find death of the most banal and senseless kind. She was found on July 26, 1974, lying face down on a beach towel in the dunes near Provincetown, Massachusetts. Her hands were missing, and small piles of pine needles were left in their place. Her head had been crushed and nearly severed from her body, possibly with some sort of military entrenching tool. Police suggested she could have died weeks before the July 26 discovery. With no clear way to identify her, the victim soon became known as the Lady of the Dunes. Who she is, why she was slain so brutally, and who ended her life are all mysteries that remain unsolved to this day. When she was discovered, police conducted extensive searches of the surrounding dunes, combed through missing person files, and compared tire tracks found near the scene to those of countless vehicles yet they found nothing to explain the murder of the Lady of the Dunes. What do we know about her? Sadly, precious little. She was anywhere between 20 and 49 years of age, a more precise identification made impossible by the condition of the body. Though she had dental work, including expensive crowns done in what police called the New York style, consultations with dentists have failed to yield any clues. Some of her teeth were removed, along with both of her hands and one forearm. Her nearly severed head was cushioned on a pair of carefully folded Wrangler jeans and a blue bandana. She was laid to rest later in 1974, but was exhumed several times in the years since. Facial reconstruction was performed in 1979. Her body was exhumed in 1980 and again in 2000 for DNA testing. In 2010, her skull, which had not been reinterred with the rest of her body, was put through a CT scanner in order to produce more accurate facial reconstructions. In 2004, serial killer Hayden Clark confessed to the murder of the Lady of the Dunes, saying that he had evidence that the police needed buried in his grandfather's garden. Clark, however, suffers from paranoid schizophrenia and authorities doubt the veracity of his claims to this and several other murders. Over the years, police as well as amateur sleuths have pursued and put forth a wide variety of possible leads in the case. At one time, it was thought that the Lady of the Dunes may have been another victim of serial killer Tony Costa, but Costa was convicted of his crimes in 1970 and hanged himself in his cell in May of 1974 before the lady was killed. Others attribute her death to notorious mobster Whitey Bulger, who was known to have removed some of his victim's teeth, but no connection between the lady and Bulger has ever been established. Other leads have also been followed, including a number of missing persons, roughly matching the age and description of the Lady of the Dunes. All of these leads have ultimately been ruled out. While investigators, both professional and amateur, have maintained a continued interest in the slaying, the case of the Lady of the Dunes has been cold since the 1970s. In August of 2015, Joe Hill, son of the famous horror novelist Stephen King and no slouch of a horror writer himself, 
came forward with a new theory. He'd been reading about the case in Deborah Halber's book, The Skeleton Crew, how amateur sleuths are solving America's coldest cases. Then he watched the movie Jaws. At exactly 54 minutes and 2 seconds into the film, Hill noticed something strange. Among the crowd, on the far left side of the screen, stood a female extra dressed in jeans, a white t-shirt, and a blue bandana. She bore a striking similarity to the reconstructed images of the Lady of the Dunes. What if the young murder victim no one has ever been able to identify has been seen by hundreds of millions of people in a beloved summer classic, and they didn't even know they were looking at her? What if the ghost of the Lady of the Dunes haunts Jaws? What if? Jaws was filming near Martha's Vineyard, not far from Provincetown, in June of 1974, before the Lady of the Dunes met her untimely end. The film was a big deal in the area and attracted plenty of attention. Many locals showed up for the film's large crowd scenes. It is entirely possible that the Lady of the Dunes was one of those extras. Extras were not tracked as carefully back then as they are today and there is perhaps no way to know for sure who all those people were. Like so many things about the case, it provides another tantalizing mystery rather than a tidy solution. I create fiction for a living, Hill points out in his own post, and he has later said that he initially thought that was all it was. You're telling yourself a ghost story. But the theory has stuck around and was recently given new legs when it appeared again on the Wondery podcast Inside Jaws, which explores the history and making of the film. Whether the woman Hill spotted in that brief crowd scene in Jaws turns out to be the Lady of the Dunes, the theory has generated plenty of fresh interest in the case, and the lead investigator for the Provincetown Police told People magazine anything that generates interest is always good. Up next, I'll tell you about some lakes around the world which are said to be cursed, plus the disappearance of author Ambrose Bierce when Weird Darkness returns. Here at Weird Darkness, scares are a daily thing, but what I'm about to tell you might horrify you. Someone in your family could, right now, be playing a dangerous game of Russian roulette. Over 43,000 people die each year from drug overdose. That's 120 people per day, 5 people per hour. That's a death by overdose every 12 minutes. And alcohol abuse is even worse. 88,000 people die every year from alcohol abuse. That's 240 people per day, 10 per hour. One person dying from alcohol abuse every 6 minutes. Somebody close to you might be next. Before that happens, take a proactive step and learn how to get those you love away from the drugs, alcohol, and other bad influences. Learn more by calling 800-831-1560. That's 800-831-1560. With the FMLA, that person can even take a leave of absence from their job to get the help they need and keep their job so they can return to it. 800-831-1560. That's 800-831-1560. 
Looking at tales of the strange and paranormal, it sometimes seems that the world is full of places that are infused with forces beyond our understanding, and at times even sinister powers that roil and thrum under the surface. One such type of mysterious and ominous place are the numerous lakes of our planet that by all accounts seem to be cursed, haunted, or both. For whatever reason, these lakes have drawn about them tales of misfortune, terror, and death, and they continue to elude rational answers. Here are some of the strangest. The United States is home to several supposedly cursed lakes, with one of the most notorious located in the state of New Jersey. Clinton Township in Hunterton County, New Jersey is home of the popular fishing and recreation spot Round Valley Reservoir, which, at 2,350 acres, 8 kilometers squared in area, and up to 180 feet or 55 meters deep, is New Jersey's largest and deepest man-made lake and is the second-largest lake in the state, period. The reservoir was created in 1960 by the New Jersey Water Authority, which flooded a circular valley, hence the reservoir's name, surrounded by Cushatunk Mountain after constructing two large dams. Originally formed to provide water to central New Jersey, namely communities in Bergen and Essex counties, Round Valley Reservoir was opened to fishing and other outdoor activities in 1972. It is important to stress that this is by no means some remote, secluded locale out in the middle of nowhere. The lake is insanely popular. With it and the scenic surrounding wilderness area of the Round Valley Recreation Area offering scuba facilities, boating, fishing, camping, hiking and biking trails, as well as various other outdoor activities and clear blue waters drawing in droves of visitors. Yet even as the myriad crowds of visitors enjoy the lake and its many activities, there is a lesser-known underbelly to it all, which has caused the reservoir to accrue a sinister reputation as being cursed. For years, there have been persistent reports of people mysteriously drowning or even vanishing without a trace at Round Valley Reservoir, with over 30 deaths and disappearances in the area since 1971. Drownings are probably to be expected when so many people gather at a lake, often with alcohol involved. But what is peculiar is not only the high rate of such occurrences, but also the mysterious circumstances that surround them and the fact that many of the bodies of these suspected drownings have never been found. One eerie facet of some of these disappearances and drownings is that they very often happen under very clear conditions and with calm water. One of the first famous cases of a mysterious disappearance in the reservoir occurred on May 4, 1973, when Thomas Trimblett, 23, and his brother-in-law Christopher Zajikowski, 22, were out on the lake fishing in a 12-foot aluminum boat. It was calm, clear, with no waves, perfect fishing weather. According to witnesses, at some point their boat inexplicably capsized for no discernible reason, and the two men went under to never be seen again. Extensive search-and-rescue efforts to find the two only turned up the boat, an oar, some fishing tackle, and two unused life jackets. The two bodies have never been found. In another strange case, on October 22, 1993, 
Jeffrey Moore, 27, and friend Raymond Barr were out on a lake for a relaxing day of fishing when their boat inexplicably capsized in clear, calm conditions and in full view of other boaters in the vicinity, who themselves had experienced no problems. One of the nearby boaters rushed to the rescue and managed to pull Barr from the water, but Moore was nowhere to be found despite a frantic search of the area. Moore's body has never been recovered, and there has never been any trace of what became of him. He seems to have been just swallowed up by the lake. Other vanishings and strange deaths are Craig Steer, 18, and Andrew Fasanella, 20, who were last seen traveling along the north shoreline of the reservoir in a canoe and seemingly disappeared off the face of the earth. Again, the weather was clear, and strangely no witnesses remember seeing them in any kind of trouble. A few days after they were reported missing, their empty canoe washed up on shore, showing no damage or signs of struggle. Yet the bodies have never been found. On March 14, 1989, John Cuba, 37, and his friend Albert Lawson both vanished while on a fishing trip on the lake in calm conditions. Although Lawson's body was eventually recovered in 1993, the body of Cuba remains at large. There have been so many strange occurrences like this that the lake is sometimes referred to as the Bermuda Triangle of New Jersey. Making things odder is that surviving swimmers who have nearly drowned or people who have fallen overboard in the reservoir have had some strange stories to tell about their experiences. Many witnesses have told a feeling as if they had been held or pulled under the water by some unseen force, sometimes even described as feeling like hands grasping at them. Boaters who have fallen into the water have reported the sensation of not being able to get back aboard their vessels due to this phenomenon, and swimmers in shallow water right near shore have claimed to have been locked into place and unable to reach the shore, inexorably drawn further away by some unknown force. This matches up with witnesses to drownings or vanishings here who have often reported that the victims seemed unable to get to their boat or to shore despite calm waters eventually being dragged under to die or disappear altogether. Such tales have led to the persistent rumor that the lake is in fact cursed. Although why this man-made reservoir should be infused with such negative energy depends on who you ask. One idea is that the lake was built over Native American sacred grounds or burial grounds, while another is that the curse has to do with a submerged town under the lake the vestiges of a community forced out in order to commence the creation of the reservoir. Still others think that the ghosts of drowning victims haunt the lake and try to pull others down to the same watery fate. The most rational explanation is probably that it is due to the sudden winds the area is known for, as well as the surprisingly cold water in the lake, and the fact that the lake is almost a perfect circle creating an optical illusion wherein swimmers may think they are closer to land than they really are. The high winds that rush down the circular valley are also known to create sudden rogue waves that pop up and dissipate at a moment's notice. Whether it is ancient curses, ghosts, or environmental and geographical factors at work here, Round Valley Reservoir has gained quite the reputation 
for being a mysterious and uncommonly lethal lake. Also in the United States is the man-made Lake Sydney Lanier, also simply known as Lake Lanier, situated in the U.S. state of Georgia. Construction of the lake began in 1950 when the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers began more or less flooding a portion of the foothills of the North Georgia Mountains along the Chattahoochee River in order to provide the city of Atlanta with hydroelectricity, flood control, and water supply. In the process of the creation of the lake, whole towns were relocated before being buried underwater, as well as flooding pristine wilderness and even cemeteries. Many of the structures that would be inundated were simply left as is, so that if one were to walk along the lake's bottom, one would find submerged towns complete with roads, walls, and houses all eerily intact, abandoned underground ghost towns inhabited only by fish and perhaps ghosts of the past. Even the ferries that were put out of business by the lake's creation were simply abandoned to become rusting hulks littering the bottom and the shore. It is perhaps this tumultuous history that has led to the supposed curse of Lake Lanier, which has been fueled by an unusually high rate of deaths by drowning, freak accidents, and unsolved crimes. Over the years, there have been an inordinate amount of deaths associated with the lake, ranging from boating accidents, drownings, and even a fair number of drivers who have lost control of their vehicles to go careening off of roads to crash into the water. Every year, nearly a dozen people die, and some years have been even worse than others, with 2011 alone seeing 17 deaths. Many of the drowning cases are somewhat odd in that they've happened very close to shore, with strong swimmers and in calm conditions, which, considering the history of the lake, have given rise to rumors that Lake Lanier is somehow haunted or cursed. As with Round Valley Reservoir, there have been those who have described unseen hands pulling at them from below, or even scarier, the sensation of something covering their mouth to prevent them from breathing. There are various stories of boats hitting something in the water, only for it to turn out there was nothing there, boats or other watercraft capsizing for no apparent reason, and sudden, dangerous rogue waves that seem to come from nowhere without warning to maraud across the surface before vanishing as suddenly as they formed. The reputation of the lake as a death trap has become quite well known, and, as with Round Valley Reservoir, there are a variety of theories put forward, ranging from ghosts to Indian curses to giant catfish the size of small cars rumored to lurk in the depths. Again, it most likely has to do with the location's blooming popularity and the sheer number of people engaging in recreation and water sports, with a lot of partiers drinking heavily and few safety precautions being observed. But the number of fatalities is still above the norm, even for a popular resort like Lake Lanier, and it does not explain the strange phenomena reported. Whether the lake's dark reputation and its many accidents are due to some sinister curse or something else is anyone's guess. Moving outside of the United States, the continent of Africa has its fair share of supposedly cursed lakes as well. One is Lake Fundudzi, which lies in the South Pansburg Mountains of South Africa's northernmost Limpopo province. 
This is a place sacred to the region's native Venda peoples, and its very formation is wreathed in legend. The lake was created when the Mutali River was blocked off by a freak landslide, which has been credited in myth as the doing of a curse that was inflicted upon a local for not offering assistance to a passing leper. This landslide and subsequent flooding apparently wrought great tragedy, killing scores of people and inundating entire villages, the screams of which can supposedly still be heard echoing in the wind. Further legends have been attributed to the lake, such as that it harbors an angry serpent god that has the habit of beating upon the rocks like a drum, and the color of the lake is said to reflect its mood. This god is also said to explain that while three rivers flow into Lake Vanduzzi, it strangely never overflows. Indeed, the lake's water levels have long been a mystery, rising or falling seemingly independent of external factors such as rain or river input. Talk of curses comes from the various drownings that have occurred here over the centuries, as well as the strange water levels and, in particular, that no one seems to be able to successfully develop the area. One developer sought to turn the area into a resort, only to experience a sudden swelling of water and flooding from the lake as construction was underway. The developer then apparently moved to another area and tried again, only to have its efforts foiled by mysterious floods and rising waters that seemed to come from nowhere, totally submerging the construction site. Yet, when the project was scrapped, the waters returned to normal without any further incidents. Interestingly, the curse of Lake Vanduzzi only seems to affect outsiders, with no locals known to have been subjected to its wrath. Indeed, the locals claim that although crocodiles inhabit these waters, they will casually ignore any from the area while attacking foreigners. Is this all folklore and spooky stories, or is there something more at work here? Also in Africa is Odichkoto Lake of Namibia, which is a small lake with a diameter of only 102 meters or 335 feet and an average depth of 45 meters or 148 feet, and it's only one of two permanent natural lakes in the entire country. Although it is mostly shallow, there are areas that drop off into dizzying depths that have yet to be determined, with possibly vast underwater cavern systems. Indeed, according to legend, the lake is bottomless and the home to all manner of supernatural creatures which reportedly have the habit of grabbing anyone who enters to pull them down to their doom. Lake Ajikoto has a colorful history as well. During World War I, the Germans used the lake as a dumping ground for all manner of discarded war materials, including cannons, firearms, ammunition, and countless others, which was all unceremoniously thrown into the lake before their surrender in 1915, in order to keep the enemy from using them. While this is all true, and much of this World War I ordinance and equipment can still be seen rather well-preserved in these depths, if rumors are correct, the Germans also dumped other things they didn't want found as well, including a vast treasure of six million gold marks. The stories of such a large treasure lying at the bottom of this relatively small lake has proven to be irresistible to numerous treasure hunters, which has also proven that perhaps the myths that the lake is a cursed place full of vengeful spirits is true as well. 
many would-be treasure hunters are said to have met their fates in the lake. Often very experienced and seasoned divers, further enforcing the idea that the lake claims those who would challenge it. So many people have died trying to get to the treasure that the lake has gained a reputation for being a cursed death trap, and it was the focus of an episode of the Travel Channel's Expedition Unknown with Josh Gates. Whether the tales of this lake's cursed treasure are real or not is up for debate. Moving over to China, we have Poyang Lake, which sits within rural Jiangxi province. China's largest freshwater lake, Poyang Lake, had a violent birth, created when the Gan River backed up to flood the countryside, dramatically swallowing Poyang County and Haiyun County, creating a mass exodus of people looking to escape the relentless invasion of the growing lake and its hungry waters. Many people are said to have died in this relentless flooding, and that was just the beginning. In 1363, Poyang Lake was the scene of perhaps the largest and bloodiest naval engagement in history, when the massive fleets of the Ming and Han dynasties clashed here during the final days of China's Mongol-led Wan dynasty in what would come to be known as the Battle of Lake Poyang. The intense battle made heavy use of the relatively new technology of firearms and gunpowder for warfare, as hulking floating fortresses called tower ships lurched at and battered each other in ferocious naval combat. In the aftermath of the fierce battle, the Ming would emerge victorious, take control of the country, and the leader, Zhu Wanzhang, would become the first emperor of the powerful Ming dynasty. It is perhaps this dark history of death and despair that has contributed to the strange and rather sinister forces said to imbue its waters, which mostly take the form of swallowing up ships without a trace, earning it suitably grim nicknames such as the Waters of Death or the Place of Death by locals. One of the strangest such disappearances occurred during World War II when the Japanese invasion and occupation of China was in full swing. On April 16, 1945, an enormous 2,000-ton Japanese cargo vessel, the Kobe Maru, along with around 200 troops, was making its way across the lake near Laowei Temple, loaded with stolen treasure, precious artifacts, and loot when it inexplicably sank under totally clear conditions. In the wake of this mysterious sinking, the Japanese Navy allegedly sent a salvage team of seven divers to go recover the ship's valuable cargo, yet only one of the divers survived. When the lone diver was retrieved, he was allegedly speechless and overcome with terror by something he had seen down in the depths. The diver is said to have never divulged what had happened, and indeed is reported as having been rendered morose unresponsive and driven insane by the mysterious ordeal. None of the other divers or indeed any of the crew or even a scrap of the Kobe Maru were ever seen again. When the war ended, the Chinese government went about trying to salvage the ship, hoping to regain some of the precious antiques and relics that had been stolen from them by the Japanese. The Chinese hired the American salvage expert Edward Boer to find the wreckage but not only did he fail to find any sign whatsoever of the wreck after an exhaustive one-month search, but several divers are said to have disappeared without a trace in the process. 
Making this whole case more bizarre is that the ship is estimated to have sunk in only 30 feet of water in the most shallow lake. Bohr himself remained quiet about the whole search decades later when he published a rather strange account in the United Nations Environment News. Over the span of the article, the events depicted become increasingly more bizarre. Bohr claims that as he was diving with his team, there was a blindingly bright light that stabbed up from the murk below, followed by an ear-piercing, unearthly screeching sound. He explained that the lake itself seemed to be shaking and that they were being pulled in by some unseen force. Bohr would claim that he had managed to pull free of the strange vortex sucking them in and when he reached a distance witnessed in horror as his team dissolved away into a pulsating bright light on the lake bottom. This is far from the only weirdness associated with the lake, and it supposedly claimed around 200 vessels during the 1960s to the 1980s alone, with their wreckage, or estimated 1,600 crew and passengers, never seen again. The few who have managed to come back to tell the tales are often beset with lost memories, lost time, profound disorientation, and chronic mental illness, even stark raving insanity. Boats have continued to go missing at Lake Poyang even up into the present day. In 2001, a large cargo ship carrying sand was suddenly swamped by a sudden large wave in otherwise calm conditions and sank without a trace. One particularly strange recent case comes from March of 2010 when a huge 1,000-ton vessel suddenly sank on a clear, calm day near shore for no discernible reason. Its wreckage has never been located. The strangest thing about these disappearances, besides the sheer number of them and the calm conditions under which they typically occur, is that in a relatively shallow lake with an average depth of only 8.4 meters (28 feet), there should be easily found wreckage and remnants of these ships all over the place. Yet there are none, despite numerous expeditions that have scoured the bottom here looking for signs of them. Despite all of the supposed missing ships, very little wreckage and no bodies have ever been found, as if the lake has just digested them. In addition to ships and divers being swallowed up by the lake, there have been other curious disappearances and oddities here as well. In 1977, three dams were built here, with the largest being 2,000 feet long, 165 feet wide, and 50 feet high. One day this enormous dam is said to have just disappeared, leaving not a scrap behind. Another bizarre case is that of a salvage diver named Shen De Hai who vanished while unsuccessfully searching for wrecks on the bottom. Reports allege that his body was found the following day floating about in the Changbashan Lake, which is odd considering this lake is 15 kilometers away and in no way connected to Poyang Lake. Adding to these mysteries are countless reports of sudden rogue tidal waves, strange roving whirlpools, underwater lights, UFOs, spontaneous violent lightning storms that abate as abruptly as they started, and mysterious shadowy lake monsters. Of course, theories abound. 
For some, this is merely the work of the lake's many treacherous sandbars. But then why are there no wrecks? Others have blamed spontaneous interdimensional portals, strange vortices, earthbound black holes, unexplained magnetic anomalies, freak lightning strikes, supernatural forces, or, of course, alien abduction. Many of the more fringe theories on the disappearances of Poyang Lake point to its location upon the 30-degree north latitude. This is significant because there are many ancient places of importance that are also located here, such as the Pyramids of Egypt, as well as other notorious places of mysterious vanishings that lie along roughly the same latitude, such as the infamous Bermuda Triangle itself. The answers remain a mystery. There are certainly more inland bodies of water like this, with their own supposed hauntings and curses, and I may come back to this topic again to cover more. It's interesting that some of these places are crowded and well-visited or have their ominous reputations masked by the natural splendor of their surroundings, showing that some evil places may at first not appear to be so evil. What lies under the surface of these enigmatic lakes? Is there something supernatural at work here, or is there some rational explanation? While we search for answers, it is certainly unsettling to know that as people go about swimming and boating in these waters, the waters themselves may be circling, scheming, and looking for new prey. At the dawn of the 20th century, Ambrose Bierce was one of the most famous writers in America. Even today, his occurrence at Owl Creek Bridge is known to readers and media viewers of all ages. He wrote famously for the Hearst newspapers throughout his journalism career, which began after his bloody experiences during the Civil War. Indeed, his short stories from that violent combat in particular, What I Saw at Shiloh, are considered some of the most impressionable and powerful war writings by any American. After the war, he traveled throughout the American West, first as a soldier, then as a journalist for numerous papers which carried his tales of our burgeoning opening frontier. Bierce's stories captured the essence of life in mining camps, roaring San Francisco, and a host of other places. His articles were known and craved by a new reading public. He famously wrote The Devil's Dictionary, which with wit and ingenious twists rallied against all manner of verbal frauds. As an investigative journalist, he pursued hoaxes, political conmen, and wrongdoers relentlessly. Often his stories were what today we call horror stories, psychological thrillers, and mysteries. It is his lifelong interest in mystery that brings him to our attention. He wrote a series of horrifying short stories toward the end of the 19th century on the theme of disappearance. Disappearance without a clue was a theme of dread. It was suggestive of death itself, a virtually taboo question in those Victorian times. In a story with the benign title The Difficulty of Crossing a Field, a Selma, Alabama antebellum plantation owner, one Williamson, discussed a horse trade with his neighbor, Armour Wren. After a short talk, Williamson departed across a nearby field and disappeared. 
three witnesses saw him, and the sworn testimony was recorded, except, of course, for the young black servant whose testimony wasn't considered. In the story An Unfinished Race, James Warson wagered he could run 40 miles and back. His British neighbors took him up on his drunken bet and followed at no less than several yards in a cart. At one point, he pitched forward and was gone. The three credible witnesses could never account for what transpired. In the story Charles Ashmore's Trail, young Charles Ashmore of Quincy, Illinois, vanished one snowy evening as he went to get water from the family spring outside. After desperate searches, no one found a trace of him, whose tracks simply stopped in the deep snow. Only his mother, then occasionally others in his family, heard the faint but clear voice of Charles. He seemed to call, apparently from a distance not clearly defined, irregularly for some months thereafter. Then nothing. In the story Staley Fleming's Hallucination, the man Fleming believes he's a bit loony and tells a doctor. He claims to see a fierce dog in his room at night. After professional preparations at Fleming's home, the doctor agrees to stay the night. After a shriek, the doctor discovers the complainant dead of an apparent vicious dog bite to the neck. Reference is made to a strange document which avers that as flesh has a spirit, so a spirit can take on flesh, the better to do violence to the living. Beers recorded more stories in a similar vein, each more bizarre than the other, but each with a sense of dread that a person can vanish and no one can account for where or why. These well-read works would have been the hallmark of a great fiction writer, which certainly Beers was, and yet a story happened later that was certainly not fiction. And it happened to Ambrose Bierce himself. Bierce, the great journalist who had exposed corruption in Washington, D.C., where he stopped a railroad magnet from fleecing the American public, was sent where the stories were. Or he would go there himself. After touring his old Civil War battlefields in 1913, the 71-year-old departed for Mexico, the Civil War in Mexico was at its brutal height. He went over the border to investigate and became an observer with Pancho Villa's revolutionaries. After many adventures about which he communicated, he wrote in a letter from Chihuahua, Mexico to a longtime friend in America, as to me, I leave here tomorrow for an unknown destination. That was the last anyone ever heard of Ambrose Bierce. Like Amelia Earhart, Many, many theories flourished to explain what happened. Was he executed? Little evidence for that. Had he died in some lost mining cabin, as another of his fictions of years before suggested? In his short story, The Night Doings at Dead Man's suggested a wayward man goes to a lonely cabin at an abandoned mine to hide his murder of a Chinese laborer. Yet Bierce, if anything, was a hero his actions during the Civil War were recognized when he saved a fellow soldier by carrying him under enemy fire to safety. He retired a major in good standing with the Army and was indeed a topographer, so his getting lost is also doubtful. So what happened to Ambrose Bierce, whose date of death is still unknown? The mystery is still to be solved. 
after all these years. Do you have a dark tale to tell? Share your story at WeirdDarkness.com and I might use it in a future episode. As I mentioned at the beginning of this podcast, this month I'm asking you to help raise as much money as possible for depression and suicide prevention, and you can give right now. Just click on Battle the Darkness at WeirdDarkness.com. And a big thanks to James and Nick, who have both donated over the last couple of days. In fact, James donated as I was recording this episode. So as of right this moment during this recording, we're currently at $775 towards our $1,000 goal. So we're only $225 away. So that $5 gift, $10 gift, $50 gift, $225 gift, whatever you're able to afford, it's definitely going to help us make that goal. And of course, we're going to continue uh, after $1,000 because this is definitely a worthy cause to give to. So please give now while you're thinking about it. Click on Battle the Darkness at WeirdDarkness.com or you can click the link in the show notes. Also at WeirdDarkness.com, you can get the free mobile app, find me on Facebook and Twitter, join the Weirdo Facebook group, read creepy stories or watch eerie videos I find online, and more. And congratulations to Snug Collectibles. They are this week's Weird Darkness retweet winner and they're receiving a free book from Audible.com. Next week's winner gets a free Weird Darkness smartphone case. And if you want to win, it's easy. Follow Weird Darkness on Twitter and then retweet the posts when you see them. The more you retweet, the greater your chance of winning. And if you like the show, please tell your friends about it on all your social media. Text your friends, email your friends and family. Any other way you connect with the outside world, please spread the word about Weird Darkness. I really, really need the help. You can also email me at darren at weirddarkness.com if you have a personal note. If you'd like to send me something physical in the mail, you can find my mailing address on the Weird Darkness contact page. And while you're listening to the podcast, take a moment, leave a rating and review. I might read your comment here in the podcast. I got an email from Seth. He said, I've been using an internet radio while recuperating from eye surgery. Ran across your podcast, strangely listed under natural science. While I consider myself a skeptic, I love this stuff. Nice that you sometimes give naturalistic explanations. Reminds me of my favorite magazine, 40 in Times. Great format, very listenable. Gave money to your cause. Thanks, signed Seth. And thank you for giving to the cause, Seth. I appreciate you helping us battle depression and suicide. Adam Bomb 82 left a review in Apple Podcasts saying, Very entertaining. I discovered this podcast a few weeks ago and I've literally listened to every episode since. And Mama Hippie left an Apple Podcast review as well. She said, I love, love, love this podcast. I listen faithfully. If I could afford to, I would be a patron. Please don't change anything, especially the Bible quotes. Love you, Darren. Stay weird. And thanks to everybody for the reviews and the emails. Take a moment if you've not already done so. Drop me an email or a review and I might read yours in an upcoming podcast. The following stories from this episode are purported to be true, and you can find links in the show notes. Welcome to Jonestown was posted at The Unredacted. Cursed Lakes was written by Brent Swanser. Murder on the Set of Jaws was written by Oren Gray for the lineup. 
The Disappearance of Ambrose Bierce was written by John Davis. Music provided by Midnight Syndicate and Shadows Symphony. You can find links to both in the show notes. And now that we're coming out of the dark, remember, 1 Peter 5, verse 8. Be careful. Watch out for attacks from Satan, your great enemy. He prowls around like a hungry, roaring lion, looking for some victim to tear apart. I'm your creator and host, Darren Marlar. Thanks for joining me in the Weird Darkness. With so many weirdos sending in their own stories for Weird Darkness, I know I've got a lot of right-brained creative weirdos listening. Have you been dreaming of writing your own book? Have you already written one? How would you like to be a published author with Dorrance Publishing? They've been working with authors and publishing great books for nearly a hundred years, and your book could be next. And they cover it all. They edit your text, design your book pages, create a great-looking cover for your book. Plus, as one of their authors, you'll also benefit from a custom book promotion marketing campaign, making your book available everywhere people buy books – online like Amazon, but also brick-and-mortar bookstores. Your only job is to write the book. Call Doran's Publishing toll-free at 800-847-1362. 800-847-1362. Even if you're only curious, it's still worth making this free call to get their free author's guide to becoming a published author. Call Dorrance Publishing at 800-847-1362. Imagine, someday I might be promoting your book in my podcast. 800-847-1362. A slow burn twist of mystery and suspense, Ether is set in a world where the supernatural clash in this chilling audio drama. Three character stories weave together. Sybil, a nurse who has glimpses of the future, Lara, a broken and unstable teenager who enters the dreams of others, and August, the matriarch of the Cubi. Their stories intersect around Aaron, a seemingly ordinary high school teacher who has no idea how extraordinary he really is, or just how much trouble he's in. Turn your volume up and plunge yourself into the world of ether. Listen today from all of your favorite podcast providers.